The first reading is a more familiar version of the 23rd Psalm, and it's found on page 555 of the Church Bibles, Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me besides quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The second reading are the words of Jesus as recorded in Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 to 11, and it can be found on page 971 of the Church Bible. Matthew 7, reading from verse 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks the door will be opened. Which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. Well, thank you very much for those readings, McCabe's, plural. <laughs> Lovely to have a married pair doing the readings this morning. Well, we're continuing a series that we started a few weeks ago looking at the Psalms and using the Psalms to inform our prayer lives, how we relate to God in both speaking to him in prayer and hearing him in prayer as well. And last week, if you weren't here, John Cray spoke brilliantly on Psalms of Lament, what to do when things are tough and how to pour out through honest prayer your feelings, emotions, and frustrations to God, knowing that actually the Bible has many of those example prayers in it, telling us that that's what we should be doing. And if you weren't there, can I encourage you to go onto the website and download it? It was brilliant and really helpful teaching. Well, this morning we're moving on to a different type of prayer, prayers of petition, 
asking God. And uh, I'm going to ask before we look at that. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we do ask that by the power of your Spirit, you might open it up to us and give us understanding in it. Amen. Well, can I encourage you to turn back to page uh, 555 in your Bibles and Psalm 23, because we're going to really be concentrating on this this morning. They're referencing our gospel reading. And for many of you, Psalm 23 is probably the most beloved of psalms. It's one of the most well-known of psalms. It's a psalm that many outside of the church as well as in the church know. In fact, whenever I, as a minister, conduct weddings or funerals or baptisms, and I ask what scripture they would like to be used. Psalm 23 comes top of the list each and every time, uh, because it's just such a powerful and comforting word of the Lord. And many of you have known, probably personally, how powerful this psalm is to minister in times of need. I know the story of a former SAS uh, non-commissioned officer who is in a battle in Yugoslavia during the civil war there. And he was a Christian and struggling how to live out the Christian life being an SAS soldier. And at one point, he he says that he was in a hut doing some reconnaissance, and his gun was by his side, and suddenly burst in this militant Yugoslavian warrior with an AK-47. I thought, oh no, this is it. And he didn't know what to do, but He's a young Christian, and he'd memorized Psalm 23. So he suddenly started saying it out loud. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. And interesting, his testimony is there and then, the Yugoslavian warrior put down his AK-47, turned around, and left the hut. God, by the power of his word, literally turning away evil. Well... Can I encourage you that this psalm is a psalm to memorize, actually? If you haven't memorized scripture before, it's one to learn by heart the ministry of the word into our lives. We're going to be looking especially at the first three verses of this psalm. Our gospel reading was Jesus' provocative call to prayer. Ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. And why? Because our Heavenly Father is a Father who knows how to give good gifts to those who ask Him. And I want to open up this psalm and find out some good gifts that we can ask for, assured that our Heavenly Father loves us as His children. Before we dig in, one important thing that you may miss because of over-familiarity with this psalm is that at the time of writing, speaking of God as a shepherd who looks after sheep would have been completely unheard of. David, in writing this psalm, was the first person to really speak of God with this imagery. Only one time previously in the Old Testament, on the dying lips of Jacob in Genesis 49, is God talked about as a shepherd. And that was only very briefly But here, David comes along for the very first time in an extended image and metaphor, which we've just looked at, acted out, speaks of God as a shepherd. Many before him who'd written scriptures had been shepherds. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses, they'd all been shepherds, but they'd never spoken of God as a shepherd himself. 
It took David, the shepherd boy, who spent years in the field looking after sheep, and then anointed and called as the king of Israel, who through many battles, through many skirmishes, through fear and persecution, became king. It took him to realize, oh, this is what God is like. He's like what I know a shepherd is like. He is our shepherd. He is my shepherd. And it's interesting that he makes it personal. He doesn't say the Lord is a shepherd or the Lord is the shepherd or the shepherd of Israel. He says the Lord is my shepherd. He's come to a personal realization of this. And let me start by saying that we can have hung around with God a very long time, followed him, known his word, and not really have got this. We can say theoretically he's a shepherd. We can understand the stories and the metaphor, but we can never have sometimes have seen him as my shepherd, as our shepherd. But for David, when he realizes this, well, he just explodes in thanksgiving, in gratitude, and in great statements of trust and promise that he knows that if he goes to God for, he's sure to receive. And I just want to open up three of those for us this morning. And they all begin with R, just to help you remember them. It's a bit cheesy, I know. Um, And the first one is R for rest. God promises, if we ask of him, to give us rest. Verse 2, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. In the context of the time, the first thing that a shepherd often did after feeding and watering his sheep was to lead them to a place of rest for several hours at a time sometimes. Because later on that day, they would have to make further journeys over ravines, through dangerous territory. And if they hadn't rested in advance, they would have worn themselves out and not been able to persevere. And the shepherd, as part of his job, would find the best pastures possible for us, the greenest and most luscious grass for them to rest in, for them to feed in, for them to find pleasure and abundance. And when David says that the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, he makes me lie down in green pastures, he's saying that's exactly what God, our shepherd, can do for us. He can give us that true rest of green pastures, of luscious fields. It's interestingly that over the past few weeks, I've had a number of conversations with members of this very congregation, and the conversations have taken about the same line. And the line has been this, I'm really, really tired. I'm glad it's August so that I can find some rest. I'm going to go on holiday or I've just come from holiday. I feel miles better. It's interesting that whenever I tend to go to church leadership conferences and networking events, the key complaint of church leaders is, I'm just so tired. I'm just so busy. I'm worn out. I'm shattered. I'm ground down and wound up and I just need some rest. That's why the Church of England, in its wisdom, gives vicars sabbaticals. We're praying that Mike finds rest in his sabbatical coming up. This issue of rest is one of the most pressing needs, I think, in modern culture. And God promises to give it to us, the best rest, the greenest pastures, 
Now, it's important to realise this might not necessarily be physical rest. It's interesting that psychologists have often noted through studies that you can be physically flat out hard at work and be mentally and in terms of emotions very rested and peaceful. But conversely, you can be doing not much at all and be unrestful on the inside and stressed out and worn out and in need of great rest. It isn't necessarily about physical rest. It's about something deeper. And many of us will know that. It's about a need for a deeper rest. Christian author Oswald Sanders in the book The Problems of Christian Discipleship says this. Work, even hard work, when the mind is at rest, is healthy giving. It produces fatigue but no tension. The fundamental cause of strain is to be found in the mind, not in the body. Well, of course, our author and creator, God himself knew this long before the studies were made and the writings had been written on this. The Lord Jesus in Matthew 11 says this, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Such wonderful words from such a wonderful saviour. And of course, the context of the time was of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law putting heavy burdens upon the people that they couldn't manage and neither could the people. The burden of the law, the burden of proving yourself, of getting yourself right before God and preeminently before other people, actually. Of making it and making a name for yourself and showing off and making sure that you hit the mark. And Jesus simply says, I'm freeing you from all of that, all that stress and strain and struggle. All you need to do is come to me. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. You'll find rest from your, for your souls. But actually, I'm going to take that all away. I'm going to hit the mark. I'm going to prove that you are worthy. I'm going to do it all at the cross. And all you need to do is come and find rest, have that all taken away, and know that you're accepted and loved just as you are. Just as you are. Accepted by God. Accepted by God's people. Beloved, chosen and redeemed. Through the Lord Jesus. He says, come to me and I will give you rest. And for us, this is the greatest source of rest for his people today. Coming to him and knowing that in all our need to prove ourselves to earn our way, to justify ourselves for God and others. Jesus says, come to me and I will give you rest. I'll take that all away and you'll just find the loving acceptance that you need. In the film, The Mission, which uh, some of you may have seen, uh, a real-life story is told of a Jesuit missionary to South America in the 18th century called Father Gabriel and a slave trader called Mendoza. Now, Mendoza had led a very evil life and raiding villages across the Andes and carrying off people into slavery. And if you've seen it, there's some harrowing accounts of what he did. And one day, he gets into a fight with his brother over a woman. He kills his brother 
and he spirals down in a spiral of despair. And he comes to a realization of just how he's been living his life and what an awful thing he's been doing. And he decides that he had to make some kind of penance, some kind of sacrifice in order to get right before God and before others. So he chooses with some Jesuit missionaries to climb to one of the highest villages where he had, in previous times, abducted people for slavery. And to climb there with a suit of armour strung up behind him that he'd attached himself, which he'd have to carry up through cliffs and ravines and tall mountain tops to get to that village. Just to say sorry, just to say I've done wrong, just to create some kind of penance for the things he's done. And the film progresses and he climbs all this way and he gets to the village and as soon as he clambers over the cliffside, this huge warrior sees him with a knife in his hand and runs towards him. And Mendoza thinks, oh no, this is it. They've come to kill me. They recognize me. They remember what I did. They've come to have me. But what this warrior does, he runs towards him. And what he does is he, he just cuts away the armor that he's been carrying. And it drops off the edge of the cliff. And Mendoza is freed and accepted. And that village loves him and says, we know you've done wrong. You didn't, you didn't have to prove yourself. You didn't need to do that. Come in. Come in. You're a changed person now. Come and find rest. And let me say to you here today that we can be carrying all kinds of things behind us, struggling and trying to prove ourselves, trying to redeem ourselves, the stuff we've done, ways we've failed. What, the Jesus, what Jesus does, he comes to us, does not with a knife to kill us or to wound us, just to cut it away. Say, no, that's done with. Come and find rest for your soul. Well, that's the first thing that we can ask him for, rest. The second thing in this psalm is refreshment. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. Again, the context of the day is important. The sheep in the Middle Eastern climate would often need watering. Hot and dry and arid at times. They would have been kept by sources of water all day long in case they needed to drink deeply. And the watering would have happened a number of times and it would have been by still or quiet waters if the waters rushed too quickly, while well, the sheep wouldn't be able to drink from them, it'd be too much for them. So the shepherd would have chosen quiet and still places and kept the sheep as close to such watering places as possible, as easy sources of refreshment. And David, using this picture, speaks, of course, of the refreshment that God, our shepherd, keeps us close to, draws us towards, and causes us to drink from. The refreshment of God's presence himself. Psalm 42, David writes in another psalm, As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, the living God. When can I go and meet with God? In his lifetime, he knew what it was to, to be, to be hungry and thirsty and on the run. And yet he says, my deepest thirst, my greatest need is for God. I thirst for him. 
that I might find refreshment and satiate that thirst in his presence. When can I go and meet with God? And of course, the Lord Jesus, centuries later, speaks about the fulfillment of this need. John chapter 7, at the end of the Feast of Tabernacles, he says, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. Let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, from them will come streams of living water, which the gospel writer John adds, by this he meant the Spirit of God, which had not yet been given to them. Jesus promises and says, if you come to me, I'm going to give you that thirst quenching, reviving water of life. That at the cross he cried out, I thirst, so that we'd never have to. That we'd never have to. That we might know, as Peter said in a sermon soon after, times of refreshing in the presence of the Lord. And this is what the good shepherd of our souls promises to each and every one of us that he can bring us to those places of deep refreshment that come only from him, only from him. In C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, The Silver Chair, he tells the story of Jill and Eustace, who are young children who have been sent or beckoned back to Narnia by Aslan to find out what's happened to a wayward prince. And in the story, if you've read it, you'll know that due to poor judgment, Jill finds herself separated from Eustace. And she finds herself very thirsty and longing for water and searching for it. And then suddenly, she sees this lovely river, this stream of pure water in front of her. But she stops. She doesn't want to drink from it. And Lewis writes, why? Let me read it for us. Although the sight of water made her feel ten times thirstier than before, she didn't rush forward and drink. She stood as still as if she'd been turned into stone with her mouth wide open. And she had very good reason. Just on this side of the stream lay the lion. She couldn't have moved even if she had tried. And she couldn't take her eyes off it. How long this lasted, she could not be sure. It seemed like hours. And the thirst became so bad that she almost felt she would not mind being eaten by the lion if only she could be sure of getting a mouthful of water first. If you are thirsty, you may drink. For a second, she stared here and there, wondering who had spoken. Then the voice said again, If you are thirsty, come and drink. It was deeper, wilder and stronger, a sort of heavy golden voice. It did not make her any less frightened than she had been before, but it made her frightened in a rather different way. Are you not thirsty? said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I, could I, would you mind going away while I do, she asked. The lion answered this by a look and a very low growl. Will you promise not to to do anything to me if I come, said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Do you eat girls, she said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. He did not say this as if it were boasting, nor if it was sorry, nor if it was angry. He just said it. I daren't come and drink, said Jill. 
Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. In the story she comes. She drinks deeply, but the lion has her. But in a wonderful way. Aslan, that figure of Christ. And for us, there is no other stream. You can go all kinds of places to find that deep need for refreshment in our souls. People do. But the only place is to come to the Lord Jesus. It might be scary. It may feel like you're being consumed. But he promises those times of refreshing that come from his presence and his presence alone that we can ask for. Well, that was the second thing, refreshment. Rest and refreshment. And lastly, from this psalm, we can ask him for restoration. Verse 3, very simply, he restores my soul. An important aim of a shepherd with the sheep in bringing them to green pasture, to lead them beside still water, was to do this, to restore them. You see, often... When we think of this psalm, we think of a flock of fluffy sheep that are all happy and content and beautiful. But actually, the reality was very different. There would have been a whole mixture of needs in that flock. Some of the sheep would have been injured and distressed. Some of them were tired and frail. Some of them probably were recovering from attacks by wild animals. And there was real need for a time of restoration. And for us, actually, as God's people, we may find ourselves sometimes in a very similar situation. Life isn't always rosy. There can be things that batter and cause injury and weariness and tiredness and brokenness. And often there are times a need for restoration comes to the fore. It's interesting, in the psalm, the Hebrew word for restoration here is literally to return again to the original place. <laughs> I wonder if anyone's ever asked the question, I just, what happened to me? I remember what I used to be like. I want to go back to that place. And that's what's promised here, restoration. God restores our souls. A number of years ago, I happened to be involved in quite a major car accident, unfortunately. And... Uh, The car in front of me was fine, but my car was completely crumpled. It was my first car, a beloved car, Ford Fiesta. Anyone else got a Ford Fiesta? No one wants to admit to it, okay. (laughs) And I took it to the garage. Well, actually, the garage came and took it away to their place of repair. And the garage told me, you have two options with this car. (laughs) It's so badly damaged that actually you might as well just scrap it and buy a new car. Or actually, for about the same amount of money, you could have it restored to its original condition. It's, it's up to you. What do you want to do? I remember thinking, well, I could either go and buy a used car that's of equivalent kind of value, or I could pay to have this thing restored. Well, I want it restored, actually. This is my first car. It's a precious car. I've got some wonderful memories from it. I learned a lot in that car. And so I paid up and had it restored. And it came back gleaming and beautiful, better than before, actually. And I remember thinking, if we can be like that for 
inanimate objects like cars. How do you think God looks at us when we're beaten up and broken and in need of restoration? Does he say to us, no, scrap it, I'm going to go for somewhere else or someone else, going to get a replacement? Or does he say, actually, no, I want restoration. (laughs) I want it brought back to the way it was and even better, shining and gleaming and restored. And as I was preparing this, I had a sense that this might be an especially important word for some here today, that God wants to restore you, restore your soul. You may have been through the wars, through tough battles, but God can bring you back to that place you were. The prophet Joel, in the book of Joel, says, I will restore to you the years the locust has devoured. The prophet Haggai in the book of Haggai says, the glory of the latter house will be greater than the glory of the former, that he can turn it all around and make it even more glorious, even more beautiful. He's able to do it. He can restore our souls. I've got to end. Those three promises that we can ask for of rest, of refreshment, of restoration, hope you've noticed all come from him directly, that when we ask for them, we're actually asking for our shepherd. The rest that comes from his sacrifice on the cross, his acceptance of who we are, the refreshment of his presence, the restoration that he wants to do with his own hands in our lives. That just as David had realised the Lord is my shepherd, not just a shepherd, my shepherd, may that be true for us as well. The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is our shepherd. Amen.